I'm Paul Kennedy, and this is Ideas. Today we continue our series on the origins of the modern public with a look at the relations between the private and the public during the Renaissance. The public and the private can't be separated out in the Renaissance. Domestic issues are public issues. The husband is king. They would say this, the husband is king of his household. They would make the analogy to the crown. You can't talk about privacy without talking about publicness. Public and private are relative terms, like hot and cold or light and dark. The one defines the other. Our modern conception of the public necessarily rests on certain ideas about what is properly private. These ideas first began to take shape in 16th century Europe, and notably in England, once described by historian Philippe Arias as the birthplace of modern privacy. There, one can see the first stirrings of the desire for privacy in our modern sense, though its achievement was still often frustrated and contested. There seems to be a a deliberate effort, and a desperate effort almost, and a new effort at finding interiority. It's like trying to find a space for yourself, for where you can be yourself, and it always failing. In this edition of Ideas, we explore the pursuit of privacy in Tudor England and how it formed the foundation of a new idea of the public. Our series is called The Origins of the Modern Public, and it's presented by David Cayley. The idea that the citizens of a state, taken all together, constitute its public, goes back to the 18th century. It was then that the term public opinion first came into use, and a general right to criticize the organs of the state began to be asserted. What was new about this 18th century public was that it was a collection of private people with no official standing. Up till then, the public and the state had been more or less synonymous. The new public stood outside the state and derived its authority from private pursuits, private reading, private discussion, private property, There could be no modern public, in other words, before a certain privacy had been achieved and a space carved out in which people could be themselves, think for themselves, associate with whom they liked. How the desire for this type of privacy developed, how it was resisted, and how it eventually came to underpin a new account of the public will be our subjects in this program. Lena Orlin is an historian of privacy in Tudor England, a subject on which she's written two books, Private Matters and Public Culture in Post-Reformation England, and most recently, Locating Privacy in Tudor England. She's also a professor of English at Georgetown University in Washington, D.C., and the executive director of the Shakespeare Association of America. When I spoke with her recently, she told me that her study of privacy had begun with an interest in a genre of Elizabethan theater called domestic tragedy. In the Renaissance, tragedy was believed to be, was thought of not in the kind of Greek terms, as much as in a kind of medieval sense, that in order to experience tragic feeling, what you 
need to witness is the fall of a great man. The more powerful the man, the more important the man, the greater the fall, the more profound the emotional experience. So the idea of a domestic tragedy was really inimical in the sense that these were tragedies about people in their homes. These were not important people. These were everyday people, and yet they were being described as tragedies. How did they measure up to a standard of tragedy that otherwise had to do with figures of power, with rulers, with kings? Tragedy, by definition, had been something that could only befall the great. The application of this term to the domestic sphere suggested that this private realm was taking on a new political significance. Lena Orlin examined one of the first instances of this theatrical innovation. The one that's thought to be the first one, that in any case is the first one that survives to us because a number of plays no longer survive, was called The Tragedy of Master Arden of Faversham. And it was based upon a true story. That is that in 1550, a man in a fairly small town in Kent, was murdered by his wife and a crew of accomplices. And it was a tragedy that seemed to catch the popular imagination, a murder that seemed to catch the popular imagination, partly because it was the wife who was believed to have rallied all these people to the cause of killing him, partly because there were so many people that she involved. There were a number of conspirators who were killed. I think there were something like 10 people who were executed for this crime. And partly because the story as it was received had to do with attempt after attempt to kill him. He was hard to kill. And so there were a lot of failed attempts along the way. It just made for an interesting and kind of sensational story. It got dramatized 40 years later in a stage play. But then for another 40 years after that, whenever there was a notorious or sensational crime, people continued to compare it to the crime of Arden's murder, which had happened way back in 1550. It was just kind of the most sensational example of domestic murder to which people constantly referred through over the course of a century. The murder of Arden of Faversham was a dramatic story, and that was certainly one reason for its popularity. But the reason Lena Orlin wanted to write about it also had to do with the tale's philosophical resonance. The kind of philosophical basis, I think, for the story, and this was how royal tragedy was translated into a domestic sphere, had to do with the fact that much of the philosophy of the time was analogical. That is, any one sphere of human experience was analogized to another. The sense was that everything followed the same kind of rules. So the state had the same system of organization as did the family. Just as the king was the head of the state, so the householder, the father, the husband was the head of the family. So in that sense, domestic tragedy was modeling itself on tragedies of state. Arden of Feversham certainly did, in that it was the story of the householder who was being brought down, who suffered the experience of the fall through his murder. But if you look at it that way, then it, it seems to be a continuation of the Middle Ages rather than an innovation. It certainly does philosophically. What was radical was the idea that everyday life was being put on the stage, that audiences in Shakespeare's London were not seeing the fall of King Henry VI but we're seeing the murder of a minor gentleman in a small town in Kent. 
An old philosophy connected everything in the world by a system of analogies and made Arden's murder a microcosm. But to put it on the stage, to give an obscure, rural, domestic murder the kind of attention formerly reserved for great public figures was something new. In her research and writing, Lena Orlin has looked for the roots of this new salience of the private sphere in 16th century England. Its foundation, she says, lies in England's experience of Reformation. In the profound political and economic changes the Reformation introduced, and in the dizzying alternation of regimes it set off. Henry VIII's break with Rome in the 1530s, the intensification of Protestantism during the reign of his son Edward VI in the 1540s, the violent return to Catholicism in the 1550s when hundreds of Protestant martyrs were burned at the stake, and the situation finally stabilized only in 1559 when Elizabeth I re-established Protestantism in a somewhat more tolerant vein. With all these changes, one after another, with, from one reign to another, every person of faith in England had to establish his or her own private relationship to faith. Everyone was challenged to be responsible for his or her own spiritual health. Secondly, in the political sphere, when Henry VIII broke with Rome, what that established was a doctrine of royal supremacy. That is, that Henry was answerable to nobody other than himself within the country of England. And this generated a political ideology which concerned itself with private life. It also was part of a process of state formation throughout Europe with an emphasis upon the centralization of government, the strengthening of central government. And part of that was the government taking responsibility as it had not done before in the medieval years for law and order. So in a time in which there was no standing army, in which there was no standing police force, the place where the government located responsibility for order was the private family. Every householder was responsible for order in his own household, which was then believed to conduce to order in the kingdom. Another dramatic effect of the Reformation on private life the empowerment of the individual householder. Economically, Henry VIII did one more remarkable thing when he broke with the Church of Rome. The church in England was extraordinarily wealthy. Not only did it have all the embroidered vestments and gold plate and so on, but it was a vast property holder. The church in England owned, it's been estimated, perhaps a third of the land in the country. Well, when he decided to make himself head of the church, Henry VIII also astonishingly seized all the properties of the church. And that included not only wealth such as plate and so on, but also all those lands. At first, Henry thought of land in the old way, that is, as something either that you inherit or as something that a royal, say, could give to his most loyal followers. So he bequeathed some of the land to his followers. But there was so much land that he didn't have a bureaucracy to manage it. And eventually he got the brilliant idea that, in fact, rather than try to administer all this land and assume all the costs for administering all this land, 
he could enjoy the windfall of selling it off. So for the first time in England, there was a massive land market. And people who were able to compile surplus wealth, as was newly possible in this period, either in consequence of all the new government uh, functions or in consequence of newly internationalized trade, people who were able to compile surplus wealth were able to establish themselves as landowners. And this was the beginning of essentially a middle class. That is people who had not inherited their wealth, people who didn't live in the public sphere, either as royals or nobles, but who were establishing private property as a source of, of private empowerment. The English Reformation, in Lena Orland's view, had three great effects. It required people to think for themselves about religion, it enhanced private wealth, and it increased the scope and ambition of the state. All three altered private life. One of the pathways of this change was through the ideology that was developed from Henry VIII's time onward to justify the state's new power. The government wanted to make clear its own organizational structure, its monarchic structure, in part by analogizing itself to what was perceived to be a natural organizational structure, the family. Because the family was essentially an aristocratic government in the sense that there was both a father and mother at head of the household, it didn't serve the interests of the state in conceptualizing organizational structures as monarchic. So the state, in its political ideologies, suppressed the role of the wife of the mother in the family in order to describe the family in a monarchic sense as being headed by a single male figure. So in the sermons that the state is releasing for public dissemination in church to be read aloud by pastors week after week, what they're repeatedly hammering home is that the family is structured in such a way that it's a political body, that it has a political head, the father, and that everybody in the household, wife, children, servants, all owe obedience to the head of the household. So because they conceive of the state as a patriarchal organization, they're increasing the emphasis upon the family as a patriarchal organization. The growing power of the state produced what might be thought a paradoxical effect. It enhanced the political significance of private life as the family became a strategic political microcosm. A second big change in private life was induced by economic expansion. More people had more money to spend on their homes, Lena Orland says, and this translated into changes in how those homes were laid out and used. Certainly the fact that the average house of the 16th century had more rooms than the average house of the 15th century, that those rooms were smaller, also that there was greater consumer wealth in the period. People owned more stuff. That meant that they had some rooms that were set aside into which they could lock away, protect this stuff. And when you have a small lockable room, you're creating the conditions for privacy in the sense by which we usually understand it. That is for solitude, for isolation, for interiority. 
Smaller lockable rooms were not initially created as private retreats, but they could be used that way. And that's how Lena Orland thinks historical changes often come about. For her, it was not that people had always wanted privacy and could now at last afford it. It was more that conditions for privacy were created and people then took advantage of the new possibilities that had presented themselves. I guess a lot of what I've tried to suggest in my work is that nothing that has happened to bring us from the Renaissance to now was inevitable, that there aren't inevitable processes of modernization or of evolution, that where we are now is not necessarily where the past could have taken us, that there are always accidental effects, that there are byproducts, that there are unintended effects. And I think that that's true for the history of privacy. In other words, people who talk about the history of privacy in the Renaissance tend to assume that privacy is something that people would of course have wanted and would have aimed for. My theory is that they didn't necessarily set out to find it, that there were other things that happened that produced it, and that they then may have come to appreciate it. But it wasn't an objective. It wasn't a goal. The way those of us who are accustomed to high levels of privacy assume must have been the case. It's also true when you look at Renaissance drama that it had accidental effects. In other words, it's the nature of drama to be about conflict. How do you get a play going? There has to be conflict in the first act and the second act. Eventually, by the fifth act, it's going to be resolved. The process of resolution is the process of imposing, of creating the conventional moral, which is supposed to be the meaning of that play. But in the process of creating conflict, in the process of personating that conflict in, say, two different characters, each of whom is articulating a different point of view. In fact, you're creating a lot of space for something other than the conventional to be articulated, for something other than than the conventional to happen. And so you're opening up the ideas and the dialogue that, in fact, open people's minds. And to my mind, this is an unintended consequence of the drama and of the shared experience of the drama, of the public culture, of those public plays. It's not what drama set out to do. It's certainly not what any of the people who were licensing and censoring drama set out to authorize, but it was a product of what happened on those public stages in Elizabethan England. Privacy, for Lena Orlin, was often a byproduct of other developments just as the necessities of dramatic writing were often the mothers of invention in the Elizabethan theater. And such privacy as did come about didn't necessarily come about easily. There were still many obstacles in its way. Orlin lays some of them out in her most recent book, Locating Privacy in Tudor England. The prevailing aristocratic taste for accumulation and display militated against withdrawal and solitude. Private homes were still centers of production, with different classes intermixed. People lived at close quarters, sharing beds and bedchambers. And crucially, mutual surveillance was still a public mandate, promoted by both church and state. 
there was a kind of prevailing anxiety about order in the public realm. There was no English monarch who did not face rebellions. There was no English monarch who did not worry about the security of his or her throne. And because there wasn't a standing army, because there wasn't a standing police force, what the state was essentially doing was recruiting everyone in this grand public mission of securing order. And one element of that was mutual surveillance. We're lucky to have the records of, you know, the, there there were legal courts and the, the, the legal structure in the Renaissance differed in some respects from that with which we're familiar today. The church itself, for example, had its own courts, ecclesiastical courts, and they were they monitored specific things which included morality. And we're lucky that the church courts have left behind voluminous records. They took down the oral testimony of witnesses who came in to testify in these courts. And that means that in England, at least, in these church courts, we have access to the way a blacksmith would talk about his life or the way a maidservant would talk about her life. And all these people were coming to the courts reporting about what they had observed about their neighbors or what they had overheard within the household or what they knew about the private business of anybody that they may have encountered. For example, if two women have an argument and one woman calls the other a whore. And no matter the source of the quarrel between them, it seems often to have devolved into some kind of accusation of sexual immorality. The woman who had been defamed as a whore would then go to the church court and say, she has slandered me, she has damaged me. Five others of my neighbors heard her call me a whore. I want my reputation to be cleared. And the church would call in the five women who had heard this slander, and any number of other witnesses testifying both to what had happened in terms of the original dispute and also the sexual behavior of the woman who was claiming to have been slandered. And the church courts were public. That is, some of their decisions were written out and shared out with people who had been brought to the trial. People were making testimony before their housemates and neighbors. It's a kind of exteriorization of private affairs. It's a making public of private complaints. And then the further thing that the church officials might do is that rather than in the privacy of the confessional saying, say two Hail Marys, instead penance or punishment would be public. So somebody who'd been found guilty of fornication would be required to dress in a white sheet and process to the church and essentially stand on display before everybody in the parish to be judged and humiliated in consequence of his sins. Ecclesiastical courts had a long tradition in the Roman Catholic Church, but according to Lena Orlin, they had not been nearly as active in policing social order as were the church courts in England after the Reformation. A wealthier, more populous, more differentiated society even as it generated new opportunities for privacy, also produced new anxieties about social disintegration. So people kept a close eye on one another, as this story shows. When I first started reading the church court cases, one of my favorites was actually the story of a will. A man was on his deathbed, 
He dictated his will. Three of his friends were there. They wrote it down. They read it back to him. He said, yes, this is my intent. And then not too long afterwards, he died. That is, these three men were coming into court in order to validate the will, to say that this was a, a genuine representation of his last desires. But then the church continues to investigate the matter, and they bring in two men who were picking apples out in the apple orchard, but who at some point stopped to get a glass of water. They came into the house in order to get something to drink, and as they pass through, they see the man on his deathbed, and one of them remarks to the other, you know, this guy's completely past it. They know that he's not capable of dictating a will. So what they're essentially testifying to is the fact that there's been collusion among the other three men to validate a will that, in fact, the testator was incapable of dictating. In the course of telling this story, the men are revealing all kinds of secrets about that household, about where people were at different points of the day, about what they saw when they passed through the house. There's information that they give to the court in order to make clear the fact that they really have had a genuine experience of the household, that they know it well enough to be able to testify to it. But that except for the purpose of validating their testimony is incidental. But it reveals how much they knew about the private lives of people in that household, about the routines of everyday life, about who was where, when, about who was doing what, when, about the motivations of those who are involved in the death of this man. I mean, there's just a wealth of detail that's coming out accidentally, which reveals how much everybody knew about each other. In the church courts, Lena Orland said earlier, private matters were being made public. And this is an effect of the Reformation that she thinks has too often been overlooked. People were deciding questions of faith for themselves. But by the same token, their private convictions were acquiring a new public and political significance. So along with the new privacy went a new effort to investigate and expose its secrets. The dominant story of the Reformation has always been gone to the idea that this empowered people privately, spiritually, that people were making their own relationship to God, that people were responsible for their own spiritual health. So there's always been a high correlation between the Reformation and the idea of interiority. That's the story that we're all familiar with. In fact, I think that there was another side of the story, which had to do with how much more public Many things that had formerly been held private, had been held private in the confessional, suddenly became. They were not only released as public information, they were punished publicly. It's a very different story from that that we usually associate with the Reformation, I think. Public punishments, the stalks, the procession to the church in the white sheet, and various other shaming rituals, show the other side of the Reformation, Lena Orland says. Autonomy and interiority are increasing, but they are also translating into new kinds of public exposure as state and church expand and intensify their control. And this goes along with her broad conclusion in her book Locating Privacy in Tudor England, that privacy was increasing in Tudor England, but that it remained beset 
on the one side by traditional forms of communal nosiness, and on the other by new forms of discipline and surveillance arising from the state and the state church's new interest in governing domestic life. My book was an attempt to litigate privacy in the early modern period. It was not an attempt that succeeded in many ways because I found the culture to be so resistant essentially to the idea of privacy. It's not only the valorization of mutual surveillance. It's not only that people were authorized to keep track of each other. It's also that people were suspicious of privacy. There were certain elements of society that were tending to conduce to privacy, and these had to do, for example, with some of the changes in the built environment. But it made people anxious that there was a possibility of privacy with which they had not traditionally been familiar, that there was the possibility of people hiding away and doing things that they always suspected if they needed to be private must be illicit. Why else would anybody want to be private? So if he went into the house in the middle of the day and locked the back door, why was he doing that? If he went into a small room with a young woman, why was he doing that? If he wanted to have a private conversation with another person, why was he doing that? All of these things aroused suspicion in the people who were around them. There obviously, I think, the story of privacy in this period is a story of tension because any individual might want to be private for his or her own reasons. And that might be that he wanted to be private to have a private conversation. It might be a private sexual relationship. It might be to think or to write. It might be privacy in any of the terms that we would associate with privacy. But that desire was always in tension with the kind of larger desire of the society to know, to prevent privacy, to be suspicious of privacy, to monitor privacy. The tension that Lena Orland discovered in her investigation of privacy in Tudor England is characteristic of the age. The philosophy of analogy that she mentioned at the beginning is still strong. Everything is seen as connected to everything else by a system of sympathies or correspondences. The household mirrors the state. The state mirrors the household. Each of the four bodily humors has its corresponding element, season, organ, and planet. But the new is erupting and disrupting everywhere. New media, new markets, new ideas, new associations— and out of this proliferation of choices, Lena Orlin concludes, privacy is being produced in a way that cannot ultimately be controlled. Everything we see in terms of what the state was doing over this period had to do with an attempt to control not only the behaviors of people, but also the beliefs of people. And what you're seeing over the course of the 16th and 17th century is how impossible that project is. I mean, what you're seeing is the kind of richness of possibilities that are available to everybody who was living in England in the 16th century. And one richness was the possibility of different religious beliefs. It's not just whether you're Catholic or whether you're Protestant. There's the wide variety of different kind of Protestantisms that were available to people. There's just a wealth of options of the way you conceive about your relationship to God or your responsibility as an ethical person. Print culture is uh, the explosion of a book trade. 
printing and disseminating books means that there's an explosion of ideas in any number of fields. The drama is also about the wealth of possibilities because so many different points of view are being aired. Privacy is coming out of possibility. Certainly people who are telling the story of the Renaissance often talk about the sense of the world opening up. It's part of the story of the discovery of the new world, merchant ventures, scientific knowledge, seeing the moon through a telescope, you know, on and on and on. You can talk about all the things that looked new, all the, the, the ways in which knowledge seemed to be new and exciting and open. And that's part of where privacy came from, too, that people all of a sudden have access to so many different ways of understanding themselves and their place in the world. You're listening to Ideas on CBC Radio 1, on Sirius Satellite Radio 137, and cbc.ca. Our program is called The Origins of the Modern Public, and it's presented by David Cayley. Privacy grew out of possibility, Lena Orland says. There were so many breaks in the relationship with the past, in religion, in science, in economy, in government, and so many new things and new experiences crowding in that the long-term effect was to foster private choice and private judgment. But privacy, her research shows, was also threatening and often contested during the early modern period. A clear and stable separation between the public and the private was still lacking. What seemed private might suddenly be made public. This instability of the idea of privacy in 16th and 17th century England is one of the themes that Patricia Fummerton takes up in a book called Cultural Aesthetics. She's a professor of English at the University of California at Santa Barbara and a member of a research group called Making Publics, whose work informs this idea series. Fummerton argues that in the world of the court and the aristocracy, privacy was often sought, but almost never found. Privacy endlessly receded, she says, like the new rooms that were being added to great houses at this time. The medieval period, everybody ate and socialized in the Great Hall. And there may be a chamber off the Great Hall where the Lord would retire, have as his bedchamber. But what you get in the Renaissance is the subdivision of rooms, and people, you get a chamber behind that chamber. The servants eat in the Great Hall, but now the Lord wants to eat in the chamber just a little bit inward beyond the, the Great Hall. And then everybody seems to sort of occupy that room. So he subdivides the house again, and there's another room inside. And what you find is these rooms within rooms within rooms developing, and it starts in the late 16th century and it accelerates through the 17th century. And I say to myself, what's going on here? It's not simply an architectural fashion to start subdividing rooms, because you also see people trying to create a privacy by inviting a group, a smaller group into the room. But inevitably, that moment of retiring 
somehow it's broken, that somebody intrudes upon it, that it is itself by that person dramatized or performed in a way that's calling attention to it. And so I find this almost desperate effort on the part of the aristocracy, which is the focus of that book, to create a space for themselves. And they, they, of course, surround themselves with stuff, with this trivia, with miniatures, with ornaments, and, and they gather these things into these little rooms, but then they're always showing them off to people. So that I see this constant effort to go inward, but there's never finally a resting place. There's another room that gets added on, and then another room that gets added on. You get a closet, and then they'll make a closet within the closet. So there's clearly this sense of dissatisfaction. And then in the poetry, it's the period of very, um, of the sonnet. At the same time this is happening, it's the period when the very little poem, and sonnet means room, little room. Um, so you've got this, these sonnets being made, these really small, intricate little poems. And they're always talking about how hard it is to write the poem. And Sydney's sonnets always end up by saying, look within your heart, look within. But then all you're left, all you have is all the ornament. You don't have anything, there's no there there. That whenever you think you're there, they don't feel that they're there. There's no there there was Gertrude Stein's famous witticism on returning to her native California and discovering that the house in which she had grown up had disappeared. It's become a figure for unreality, the feeling of something hollow at its heart. Patricia Fummerton finds this feeling in Tudor and Stuart, England. It was a world, she thinks, that experienced itself as broken and incoherent, haunted by dreams of wholeness and communal solidarity, but also reaching uncertainly for a new order of privacy and individuality. The trouble was that the private was not clearly delineated. It kept turning back into the public. One of her examples is a court entertainment of the time called a mask, often preceded by an anti-mask, which presented a spectacle of disorder, Masks were stately pageants involving musicians, elaborately costumed actors, singers, and dancers, and intricate and ingenious sets. Their texts were allegories of order which glorified the king, who was the patron and sponsor of the performance. It's a private entertainment put on by the king at court, but it's also public entertainment. There were, you know, hundreds of people invited. And then what happens in the mask, it's always a tribute to the king. So it's always a celebration of the king's power. So there's always an anti-mask first, in which these unruly monsters or, or, you know, it might be the news press, you know, people with eyes and ears and tongues coming out and yelling garbled words and threatening disorder and dancing wild dances. And then they get dispelled usually by um, courtiers um, in disguise as the, some high virtues descending from the heavens, and they, they all run away. And then there's, there's always an opening up of space and looking inward till you finally get to the small group of courtiers who worship the king. It's always an opening up. And in fact, Inigo Jones, who was the, he was an architect, but he was also a stage designer. He built a special stage new to the period where it's actually very familiar today where you just pull back slats and the stage would keep opening up 
and up and up and our inward and inward and inward. That was a new invention. He discovered it in Italy and brought it. So the king is sitting in the perfect perspective point to watch this mask. So when he everything starts opening up and you finally see that interior space, the king's got the perfect perspective point to look inward at what? Himself, right? At a tribute to himself. In a mask, the sets kept opening inward towards an ideal privacy, which was then revealed at the last as public. There was, after all, nothing more public than what the mask finally disclosed, the radiance of the king or the queen, whose bodies were the public, according to the doctrine of the time. Two ideals were still in competition or tension, as Lena Orland said earlier. The public, for us today, is a collection of private persons who join together as individuals to effect some joint purpose or pursue some common pleasure. The public, at the time Patricia Fummerton is talking about, still mainly referred to a conception of society as an integrated and indivisible whole, which the king and the officials of the state represented to the people. But this was not representation in our sense, in which public persons are delegates of the people. Public persons at this time were illustrations or exemplifications or embodiments of society as a whole. And insofar as society was still grounded in this sense of the public as the whole, attempts to clear a private space were bound to keep uncovering this ground. And so, Patricia Fummerton says, public and private kept dissolving into each other. You can't talk about privacy without talking about publicness. So the Renaissance is a fascinating moment where private and public are constantly folding in upon themselves and one is turning into the other so that when you withdraw inward, you might suddenly find two servants and a minister <laughs> right there in your bedchamber because the spaces are permeable even as you're trying to create privateness. And for the period in the Renaissance, there's this constant effort to try to mark off private spaces. There's a movement towards increasingly defining, for instance, the domestic as separate. And yet it's constantly being exposed as intricately connected and to political public issues. And what goes on in behind closed doors is not private, it's public. Or not. It keeps folding in and out, in and out. And that ability for the period constantly to turn private into public and public into private, it's a pivotal moment in history, I think. things that were happening in the 16th century suggested the idea of privacy. From the Reformation, with its claim that faith is a private relationship with God, to the expansion of private property and consumer choice. But the advance of privacy was also being checked, Patricia Fummerton argues, because the public kept turning up at the heart of the private. The modern idea of a secure and inviolable private realm 
could only develop in tandem with a new conception of the public. And the idea of the public was still in transition. It no longer belonged exclusively to the court, but it was not yet a secure possession of the citizenry either. It was in dispute. How this dispute played out is the subject of the late Richard Helgerson's book, Adulterous Alliances, Home, State, and History in Early Modern European Drama and Painting. The book examines the portrayal of the private home in relation to the public world of the state and the aristocracy. Helgerson was one of the inspirations and founders of Making Publics, the group whose ongoing research I have been reporting in this series. I spoke to him a year before his untimely death in 2008, and he talked about adulterous alliances. What I'm interested in in that book is the representation of ordinary middle-class existence. After all, in many forms of art, there was a sense that uh, aristocratic life was what was to be portrayed, and that if you turn to the life of craftsmen, of ordinary citizens, of uh, peasants uh, particularly, you were in the area of farce, of comedy, and fairly low comedy at that. What uh, struck me was the emergence um, in uh, England, powerfully in uh, Spain, in uh, in drama, and in uh, uh, the Netherlands, in painting, particularly genre painting, of representations that weren't obviously or necessarily comic or farcical of middle-class life. And I wondered why that was happening in these different places at these uh, moments. What kinds of stories were being told about the uh, middle-class home. And what I found was a, uh, a repetition in many of these uh, areas, really in all these areas, of a story of the middle-class home being uh, invaded by the monarchic state or some representative of the monarchic state, a soldier, a lord, an aristocrat, in uh, at least one very notable instance by the king himself, invaded with the intent of um, adultery, that is, of uh, sexually possessing the wife, the woman of the household. And I wondered why these stories kept getting told over and over again. It's not that this, in fact, went on to any great extent. I don't know whether it went on or not or was part of anybody's real life, but it's a story that got told and um, powerfully released emotions about uh, the vulnerability of middle-class homes, the sense that they mattered, that they could be a source of tragic feelings, certainly of pathetic feelings, and that telling this particular story raised questions about the relationship between the middle-class, usually urban home and the uh, monarchic state and a fear of the incursion of that uh, state, of its taking over powers, liberties that had been part of municipal 
uh, life in many parts of uh, Europe uh, and that were felt to be under threat in the 16th and uh, 17th centuries. Richard Helgerson's Adulterous Alliances deals with a variety of stories and images that illustrate the recurring scene of the violation of the private home. He examines the popular Elizabethan history play Edward IV, which told the story of the king's seduction of Jane Shore, the wife of a cloth dealer, the notable case he mentioned a moment ago. He looks at 17th-century Dutch paintings in which the presence of a soldier in a domestic interior adds a note of menace to a tranquil scene. And he asks why and with what effect these stories were told. These homes are representations. I'm not really talking about the actual domestic history, uh, family life or whatever, of uh, the early modern period. That's a subject that's been written about a great deal and, uh, and very interestingly, and there are a good many controversies about it. What I'm talking about is the representation of these things. That is, the making public of private uh, spaces through stories, through plays, through paintings that represented them, and making a public for those representations so that people would identify themselves with certain stories and see themselves as, in some sense, represented by those stories. Richard Helgerson's main evidence that people felt represented by stories of aristocratic predation and homespun virtue is the fact that the stories kept getting told by commercial painters and playwrights with a living to make and an audience to please. Otherwise, it's notoriously difficult to know what people may have said to one another, for example, about a painting hung in a 17th-century Dutch home. But by the 18th century, such stories were becoming openly controversial. One example is The Marriage of Figaro, a play in which a count threatens and interferes with the marriage plans of two of his servants because of his designs on the woman. Another is Samuel Richardson's novel Clarissa, or The History of a Young Lady, which recounts the undoing of the heroine by a vile aristocrat called Lovelace. Both became co-celebre, in the case of Clarissa, to the point that the French Enlightenment philosopher Denis Diderot could claim that it had divided the whole of society into competing publics. Diderot, in effect, says that uh, if you weep over this story and feel powerfully for Clarissa, you're part of one community. If you don't, if you mock it, if you're on the side of Lovelace, the predator... You're part of another community, and the world is divided according to the response one has to these uh, representations. That was very much the case in the response to uh, a play that may not seem to us supercharged uh, politically, uh, Beaumarchais's Marriage of Figaro and, and Mozart's opera uh, based on it. But that was a play that... Uh, according to testimony at the time, shook the state. The king refused to allow it to be produced initially and then finally came around, but uh, 
People uh, talked of his prohibition as an act of tyranny. Uh, Napoleon later remarked that um, uh, the marriage of Figaro helped bring down the state. So uh, these uh, representations could become very public and could have a powerful political influence. Between the time of the first performance of The Marriage of Figaro in 1784 and the time of the Tudors, which we considered in the first part of today's broadcast, public and private changed places in their endless dance. The audience of private persons who applauded The Marriage of Figaro and Susanna now spoke as the public, the butt of the play satire, the aristocratic world that had once been the public was on the defensive. The private had successfully separated itself from the public. How this happened is the subject of the next program in this series, an hour with American scholar Michael McKeon, whose book The Secret History of Domesticity tells the story of how the public and the private were disentangled. On Ideas, you've listened to The Origins of the Modern Public by David Cayley. His series continues next week. It's also available as a podcast at cbc.ca slash podcasting. Production was by David Cayley, Dave Field, and Bernie Lucht. To find out about upcoming Ideas programs, you can sign up for our weekly newsletter. Go to cbc.ca slash ideas and follow the links. The executive producer of Ideas is Bernie Lucht. I'm Paul Kennedy. The Hourly News is next on CBC Radio 1 and on Sirius Satellite Radio.